Each of us has a frame of reference. We think what we think according to how we see our world. How we see our world is a result of how we were raised and how we were educated and how we were treated and how we interact with those around us. We read in the news about someone who commits a horrendous crime <clears throat> and we wonder how someone can do such a thing. For example, the man who killed and injured all those people in Las Vegas, how could he bring himself to do that? We tried to see some logic or reason for what he has done. He wasn't from an oppressed minority. He wasn't a fanatic Muslim. He had money to burn. He bought thousands of dollars worth of guns and ammunition and planned the action for at least a couple of years. He didn't know these people. They were just one of the locations he considered doing this. He was looking for a place where he could kill the most people. <clears throat> people being entertained by a ball game or a concert. How could this man do such a thing? What could be his frame of reference? What bizarre world does he see himself in that he has to strike back in this way? Does this make him the king of his world? <clears throat> we know his daddy was a bank robber. We don't know the abuse or neglect that he suffered from his daddy. He learned the world was a place to be conquered in order to gain personal wealth at the expense of others who are not important. <clears throat> Maybe the son didn't see it that way. <clears throat> he didn't have a history of crime up to this point. He had apparently made money without breaking the law, but <clears throat> this crime wasn't about making money. We don't know what it was about. I think he was demon-possessed. I don't want to know the frame of reference of a man who is demon-possessed. Our frame of reference determines how we see things. We can change our frame of reference if we somehow feel motivated to do so, but it can be a challenge to do so. In Luke 24, the people Jesus talked to on the road to Emmaus didn't have the same frame of reference we do. We have the story about Jesus in our Bibles, and we have heard it from, from our preachers. Those people who lived in the time Jesus was on this earth and the places where Jesus went about didn't understand him the way we do. <clears throat> they were Jews with long-established traditions and religion. Their religious leaders taught them the worldview <clears throat> that they now had. They were chosen by God, and yet they lived in a nation which was occupied by the enemy. They were ruled by the Roman Empire. They lived under Roman law and Roman rulers, and they paid Roman taxes. They were living an oppressed life. They were looking forward to the day when God would send them a Messiah, a conquering hero. He would drive out those Roman oppressors and lead their nation, their true nation, in victory to a prosperous and peaceful existence. <clears throat> the Messiah had been prophesied. They knew he was coming. When Jesus became known, they paid attention. They were excited. They were ready to follow him. <clears throat> he was going to drive out those Romans. 
he would bring in the glorious future they were waiting for. That was their frame of reference. But the priests and Pharisees didn't see things from the same perspective. <clears throat> they were comfortable. They were a willing part of the established order of things. This man, Jesus, was rocking the boat. He was turning the people away from their control. He was exposing their hypocrisy. He was a troublemaker. If he succeeded, he would take away their status and their control and their personal wealth. Or if the Romans put him down, all the Jews would also be attacked. The Romans would see the Jewish establishment as part of the problem. And the Pharisees would suffer the same fate as the common folks instead of ruling the common folks. <clears throat> Jesus had to be sacrificed for the Jewish establishment to prosper. When Jesus was arrested and even the common folks turned against him, he was crucified. The real followers of Jesus were devastated. Their leader, their Messiah, was dead. All hope was gone. Yes, some of them remembered that he said he would die and then rise again from the dead. But who really believed it? Surely it was just some parable about theology using symbolic language. This was reality. He was really dead. I've often wondered why those two people on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus. It may be because they weren't looking for Jesus. They believed he was dead. But he might have actually changed in appearance. We know from other verses that he showed his disciples his nail-scarred hands. He challenged Thomas to believe or put his hand into the wound where the spear had gone in. If he still had those wounds, he might still have other scars inflicted on, the, inflicted on that same day. We know from the Bible accounts he was beaten and whipped. The Roman soldiers had pressed down a crown of thorns onto his head. I hadn't thought much about all those other wounds until I saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. Jesus was battered, maybe beyond recognition. In Isaiah 53, which prophesied the suffering of the future Messiah in verse 3, says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. It appears that after the crucifixion, the appearance of Jesus might have looked kind of rough. Maybe this is why he wasn't recognized on the road to Emmaus. In 1 Peter 3, 18-20, he writes about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits now in prison who were disobedient to God in the days of Noah. So if Jesus preached in Hades for three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, he might, have, he might look a little older than the young man he was before the crucifixion. How does time work in a place like Hades? Well, it was a long time there while it was only, was it a long time there while it was only three days here? 
My wife tells me they should at least have recognized his voice. Of course, she is right, but they didn't recognize him. Jesus met up with those two people and joined them on the walk to Emmaus. He could see they had been talking and asking them. He asked them what they had been talking about. He knew what they were talking about, I'm sure. It was his way of getting into the conversation. They asked him if he was the only one who didn't know about the terrible thing that had happened. They talked about how their hopes of Jesus being the Messiah were nailed with him on the cross. Then they talked about the rumors of him being alive and about the empty tomb. They just didn't know how to put it all together. They couldn't process it. Jesus reprimanded them for their lack of faith. He told them it had to happen this way for the Messiah to suffer and die before he could enter into his glory. Then he spelled it out for them with a history lesson from the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, how all things were written about him in the scriptures. We don't know exactly which scripture he shared with them, but here we have the advantage of a different frame of reference. We read the gospels and we have the Old Testament scriptures Jesus is talking about. We know from the New Testament that this is not the first time Jesus has talked about this. If we start with Moses, <clears throat> we are starting with Genesis because Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Death came into the world with the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Someone had to pay the price. God could have ended mankind's history right then and there by killing Adam and Eve before they had kids. Instead, God killed an animal to use the skin for Adam and Eve to have clothing. Most of the people in the world turned away from God. After more than 1,600 years, it was time to end it all. God could have done so, but he saved Noah and his family in the ark, along with enough animals to repopulate the world. Ten generations later, Abraham was the one God chose to begin the nation of chosen people who would set the stage for the Son of God to enter the world and offer salvation to all who would believe in him. God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. Abraham was willing to obey God, believing God would bring him back to life, according to Hebrews eleven nineteen. God gave Abraham's son back to him before he sacrificed him, giving, a, giving him a substitute sacrifice. This was a foreshadowing of the future when God's son would be sacrificed as a substitution for us. <clears throat> when Moses was on the mountain getting the laws from God, the Israelites built an idol to worship. God told Moses he was going to destroy them, but Moses talked him out of it. When all but two of the spies Moses sent to spy on Canaan advised going in, advised going against, against going in, 
The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt. God told Moses he would kill them all and start over. Moses talked him out of it. <clears throat> Throughout Israelite history, God's chosen people rebelled against him. On their own, they were hopeless. They and all the rest of the world deserved death. Someone had to pay the price. Let's look at some of the prophecies concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. David wrote the Psalms about the Messiah's suffering and resurrection. David lived about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Peter referred to Psalm 16.10 in Acts 2, and Paul referred to it in Acts 13. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In Psalm 22, Jesus quoted verse 1 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In 22.16, they pierced my hands and my feet. In 22.18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus quoted 41.9 in John 13.18, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, in reference to Judas. <clears throat> in Psalm 68.18, <clears throat> You have ascended on high, you have led captives your captives. Paul referred to this when talking about Jesus' ascension and freeing sinners from bondage. Jesus applied Psalm 118, verse 22, to his own rejection by the Jews. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah was a prophet from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. Isaiah 28, 16 Jesus quoted in Matthew 21, 42, The stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Isaiah 53, 4-12 tells about the crucifixion of Jesus. <clears throat> Thomas is listed as one of the disciples of, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But that's all they say about him. One verse in each of those Gospels. He is also named among them in Acts 1.13 as they were in the upper room for prayer just before the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the only place that Thomas's name comes up in Acts, but the Gospel of John talks about Thomas more extensively. John calls him Didymus. This word is found nowhere else in the Bible except in John. It means twin. Two of my young grandsons are twins. I have a hard time telling them apart. From the back, it is impossible. I heard their other, older brother calling one of them twin while calling him from behind him. I'm tempted to just call them twins when talking to them. What I do when I first see them that day is say, hey, Paul, or hello, Joseph, and see which one answers to the name I call. Then I say hello to the other one, 
using his name. And then I make a mental note of each boy's name correct, connected with the color of the shirt he is wearing that day. That way I know which boy is which the rest of the day. I think maybe John knew Thomas before they became disciples of Jesus. If John knew Thomas and his twin brother while they were growing up, I understand why John called him Didymus or twin. The first time John talked about the twin or Thomas was back in John 11. At that time, Jesus and his men got the news that Jesus' good friend Lazarus was sick. Jesus told his men that the illness was not to end in death, but it was to glorify God, in that the Son of God would be glorified. Jesus then stayed a couple of days where he was. Then he told his men it was time to go to Judea to see Lazarus. His men cautioned him. They reminded him that the Jews there wanted to stone him to death. Those people didn't like the fact that Jesus told them he was the Son of God and therefore equal to God. In chapter 10, verse 30, he had said, I and the Father are one. Verse 39 of that chapter tells us the Jews tried to grab him, but he got away. So the disciples didn't think it was a good idea to go see Lazarus in Judea. Jesus told them their friend Lazarus had fallen asleep, so Jesus was going to go wake him up. The men took Jesus' words literally and said it was good for Lazarus to sleep. That would help him get well. And Jesus then spoke more plainly and said, Lazarus is dead. He went on to say it was good that they weren't there when it happened, so that what happened next would strengthen their belief in Jesus. So it was time to go see Lazarus. This is where Thomas spoke up. We, we read the book, so we know Jesus was going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, Thomas had a different frame of reference. He didn't have a clue what was going to happen next. He knew that people in Judea wanted to stone Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. He was willing to follow Jesus to death. In John eleven sixteen, Thomas said to the other disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Thomas didn't know what was going on, but he was going to follow Jesus no matter what. John doesn't record how Jesus or the disciples responded to what Thomas said. All we know is that Jesus and his men went to go to Lazarus. <clears throat> The next time John talks about Thomas is in the first part of chapter 14. In the last part of that chapter, before that, Jesus and most of the disciples were together in what we call the Last Supper. Jesus is only talking to 11 of his disciples. Judas had just left the room and was going out to betray Jesus to the Pharisees. He was going to lead the enemy back to Jesus in the dead of night so they would, could capture and arrest him. Jesus knew all about it. He was telling his other men that he would soon be leaving them. <clears throat> he told them they couldn't come with him. He told them they were to love each other just as he loved them. He said people would know they were his disciples because people would see the, the love they had for one another. P 
Peter asked Jesus where he was going, and Jesus told him he couldn't follow him, but would follow him later. Peter said he was willing to follow Jesus right then and would even die for him. Jesus told Peter he would deny Jesus three times before the night was over. So Peter had asked Jesus where he was going. In 14.4, Jesus told the men they knew the way where he was going. So then Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus re replied, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We can see from the conversation that Jesus had with Peter and Thomas and Philip that Thomas wasn't the only one who didn't have a full grasp of the situation. From our frame of reference, the big picture is more clear. We have read the book. Fast forward. Jesus has been arrested and crucified. On Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. Later that day, Jesus has talked to the two people on the road to Emmaus. As Luke has told us, they invited Jesus to stay for supper. <clears throat> as Jesus was breaking bread for them, they recognized him as Jesus. Perhaps they noticed his nail-scarred hands. Then he disappeared. Luke then tells us they returned right away to Jerusalem and found the disciples and others gathered together, and John's account differs in the details. John tells us Thomas wasn't there. Then Jesus appeared in the midst of them. So everybody saw Jesus except Thomas. We don't know where Thomas was at that time. Maybe he was back home with his twin brother, mourning over the death of Jesus. Jesus appeared out of thin air and got everybody's attention. He showed them his nail-scarred hands and feet. <clears throat> they knew he really was Jesus. Thomas didn't see any of that. He wasn't there that night. He had a different frame of reference from them when they told him they saw Jesus. He didn't believe him. He said he would believe when he could put his hand in the scar of Jesus, where the Roman soldier had stabbed him with a spear after he had died on the cross. <clears throat> Do we have doubts? Do we put conditions on our belief? Do we say, prove it to me? What is our frame of reference? <clears throat> Most believers become believers when they are kids. When we're kids, if we are brought up in a family that believes in Jesus, then we will find it easier to believe in Jesus. In Mark 10, 15 and Luke 18, 17, Jesus said, we need to enter the kingdom of God as a child or we won't enter at all. He means both literally and figuratively. <clears throat> we can enter as a child or we are willing to become like a child in our belief. We can enter as an adult. <clears throat> in other words, an adult needs to be willing to adjust his frame of reference. 
clear out some conflicting beliefs he has picked up along the way, false beliefs that would hinder belief in the Son of God, it is much easier for a child who still hasn't become set in beliefs he has learned from the world. It is easier for that child to believe in Jesus. There are a lot of ideas out there in the world that conflict with the teaching of the Bible. In our world, in this day and age, we are taught one perception of reality in church and another in the schools most of us go to. At home, we, we may get some of both. If the realities conflict, we may choose to modify our worldview to accept some of both worlds. We compartmentalize our thinking. The secular worldview competes with the truth presented in the Bible. Some of us decide to believe part of the Bible, but not the other. Like Thomas, we have doubt. Some of us believe the New Testament, but not the Old Testament. Or at least the parts of the Old Testament this, that disagree with the secular worldview we have come to believe. We all have access to the same facts. The difference is in how we perceive those facts and how we interpret those facts. Some people interpret the Bible in a way to fit the worldview they have grown up with and embraced as the real truth. Some of us interpret the information presented by the world in a way that fits with what the Bible presents as truth. That is what I strive to do. It is a challenge. I want to think outside the cultural box we live in whenever it contradicts the Bible. For those of us who are true believers in the truth the Bible presents, our view is still colored by the current culture of the world we live in. We have been and are being taught by our world, bombarded by our world with the doubt of things biblical in order to embrace the latest scientific claims. Science has become a pervasive religion. Most of what we think we know about the universe is speculation.